Hi and thanks for joining me, Cleon and Ian Loon, for this RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast. In this episode, we'll hear a talk from the Thomas Davis Lectures archives on the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien, first broadcast in 1997, the centenary year of the Limerick-born writer's birth. Lorna Reynolds, at the time of broadcast, was Professor Emeritus of Modern English at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Author of the critical biography Kate O'Brien, A Literary Portrait, and valuably, someone who had been a long-time close friend of the writer. Here's Lorna Reynolds. The words which Shakespeare put into the mouth of poor Anne Bullen when she knows her life is over. I shall go out like a bright exhalation in the evening and no man see me more. Often came into my mind after the death of Kate O'Brien. But I was wrong. She was not a mere exhalation. She was a star who sank for a while below the horizon, and, when her time had come, rose again. At her death in 1974, most of her books were out of print. She was believed to be old-fashioned. She had not published anything for some years. It looked as if she were one of those writers whose appeal is only to their own generation. I remember the question of who is Kate O'Brien being asked. Then, in 1984, ten years after her death, Arlen House reissued The Anteroom and The Land of Spices, to be followed by Virago Press, which republished the rest of her novels, and her Spanish travel book, Farewell, Spain. Kate O'Brien was once more a literary luminary to be studied, assessed, discussed, written about. A yearly seminar, the Kate O'Brien Weekend, was established in Limerick, her dear native place. Students began to write their MA and PhD theses on her work, and not just Irish, but French, Italian and Spanish students. By this reckoning, whatever else she was, she was surely relevant. I am often asked how I first met Kate O'Brien. It was at the annual dinner of the Women Writers Club of Dublin, the members of which invited her in 1946 to be their guest of honour. She was already famous, of course. A little earlier that year had published That Lady to great critical acclaim and was enjoying its success. I was an unknown young woman who had been asked to second the toast in her honour, Michael Moore being the proposer. When we moved from the table and mingled with our guests, as the saying is, she made a point of seeking me out and congratulating me on my speech, on my ability to think on my feet, as she put it. That was typical of her. She was larger than life, as usually lived. With her, formal good manners could become, at the least excuse, overwhelming graciousness. She stayed in the Shelburne, holding court every afternoon and dispensing hospitality. She took taxis everywhere, never a bus. She flew backwards and forwards between England and Ireland at the drop of a hat, to use one of her own favourite expressions. She was ready to listen to anyone who spoke sense, but she was easily bored, and if she thought her opposite number was talking nonsense, she did not hesitate to tell him or her so. First would come an ominous silence, and then she would break out with, I never heard such rubbish in my life before. 
She was very volatile and could swing in a few hours from the heights of optimism to the depths of despair, from an all-conquering hero mood to that of the hag in the ashes. She describes her father as having a volatile temperament, so I suppose she inherited that from him. One had to know her well to discover this side of her temperament, and I don't think she let her family see much of it. One of the most touching things about this famous, worldly, accomplished woman was her consideration for her family. She was vulnerable through them, and the banning of two of her novels mortified her more because of them and what they might have been made to feel in their native limerick than on her own account. She had her own means of revenge and took them in Pray for the Wanderer and the Last of Summer. She could be autocratic and believed she had impeccable taste. If one disagreed, she could be furiously annoyed. But I was as obstinate as she was confident, and it was then a case of the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. For a while, diplomatic relations would be broken off, but at the end we had to agree to differ. When I met her, there was little left of her youthful beauty, as it appears in early photographs, but she was a formidable, imposing presence, and in some aspects looked rather like Ibn Saud, king of Saudi Arabia at the time. When I rather nervously told her this, she was quite pleased, as she was by another famous character to whom I compared her, Fabius Cunctator Maximus, the Roman general who won so many battles by delaying tactics. She said of herself that she was a cunning child and knew how to get her own way. As a grown-up, she had a similar cunning. She did not engage in confrontation except with close friends, but believed that difficulties could dissolve in the passage of time if they were ignored for long enough. This was foreign to me at the time and not always successful for her. It is well known that Kate O'Brien despised what she considered a typical English attitude, the belief in a sense of humour as an essential part of a philosophy of life. It is true that this seemed to her very superficial. Life for her was a grave mystery and grew the greater as she got older. But it does not mean that she herself was lacking in a sense of humour. On the contrary, she had a robust, if not Rabelaisian, sense of humour. I remember, after I had invited her to my home for the first time to meet my mother and sisters, telling a friend about the visit. Do you mean to say, she said, that you had Kate O'Brien in your drawing room? Yes, where else, said I. And when I repeated this little exchange to Kate, she was highly amused. What had the woman in mind, she asked. Did she think you should have had a hall for us to meet? And she made the most exquisite comedy, out of a complicated tale of an alleged theft by a respectable citizen of a pig from a convent of nuns somewhere in the West. She tells us in Presentation Parlour that her Aunt Annie had a perfect sense of comic timing and the accomplishment had evidently been handed on. But I should like now to record some of Kate O'Brien's graver qualities, her feeling for children, for instance, she used to say that she was always touched by the goodwill of children, by their readiness to cooperate with the grown-up world, their trust in their elders, their eagerness to learn, 
and some children's idiosyncratic use of language enchanted her. But what I should most like to mention is a gift for sympathy. She was wonderfully reassuring in circumstances of bereavement. I understand grief, she often said. People must cry. They must be allowed to give expression to grief. The stiff upper lip attitude is nonsense. All strong feelings must be allowed expression. And what can be stronger than the sense of loss when a beloved person is carried off to the mysterious regions of the dead? Nowadays this is accepted as a commonplace, but not in the 40s. She was very much ahead of her time. Then one was expected to suffer in silence and not embarrass other people with a show of emotion. One was expected to pull oneself together and get on with life. I do not mean to suggest that Kate O'Brien believes suffering justified one in abandonment of self-control. Far from it. But suffering entitled one to the proper expression of one's feelings and understanding from others who sometime in their own life would be in need of similar forbearance. But to return for a moment to the frivolous, Kate Brown was ahead of her time in another small matter. She hated hats and never wore them in ordinary life. But, like Yeats, she approved of custom and ceremony. And so, at weddings and christenings and funerals, she felt obliged to put a hat on her head. The plainer, the better. After the ceremony, she promptly mislaid the now unnecessary object, with the result that the next time a solemn occasion presented itself, she had to buy a new hat. She did not much like hats on other people either, and the moment one got indoors she would say, Take your hat off, I implore you. She delighted in the ambiguous pub talk of the 40s and 50s in Ireland, the Miles Nicopolean period, and enthusiastically took to its cryptic style. A certain party and a certain other party began to figure in her illusions, and mind you, I said nothing, was mockingly chanted on suitable and unsuitable occasions. It was from an English friend, the publisher Rupert Hart Davies, that she acquired another favourite expression. Chaps must keep up their strength, said as one lifted a glass of alcoholic refreshment to one's lips. She was lavish in hospitality. I recall in the summer of 1957 when she was expecting a visit from her sister-in-law Rosemary with her two little boys, John and Dunnock, how anxious she was that everything should be in apple pie order and likes and dislikes catered for. And Ignacio Silone described a visit he and his wife, Dorina Larisi, paid to her as 10 days in a Japanese garden. Now, what I have been saying up to this has been concerned with the Kate O'Brien anyone might have met socially, with what distinguished her as a private woman, little idiosyncratic characteristics. But if that were all, she would not be the subject of this series of Thomas Davis lectures, and my memories of the private person would be irrelevant to everyone except myself. But Kate O'Brien was an artist of considerable ability, and it is to this aspect of her we must now turn and try to understand what made her the writer she was. For some time before her death, she had lost popularity, and had come to seem old-fashioned. This was, I believe, because it was only then that critical opinion had caught up with the technical experiments of the 20s and 30s. 
the use of the stream of consciousness device, of the flashback, the exploration of the Freudian interpretation of behaviour. In the light of such technical tactics, Kate O'Brien could seem old-fashioned. Her command of continued narrative, of straightforward analysis of character, of interpretation of behaviour in the light of traditional Christian morality, might seem old hat, to use another favourite expression of hers. In short, her technique of writing was not modern. Well, we are now in a postmodern world and can put all that in its place. In 1926, a challenge from a friend to write a play successfully met in Distinguished Villa and a subsequent advance from a publisher to write a novel launched her on her way to the life she could at last accept as her own. The success of the first novel, Without My Cloak, which won both the Hawthornden and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, settled her future. She was to be an artist, a writer, someone who explored other people's lives, an observer looking in from outside, an adult Anna Murphy. Kate O'Brien believed herself to have lived in this condition all her days. In an interview towards the end of her life, she said, I've always been alone. Even when my life was closely connected with others, I have been alone. And in Pray for the Wanderer, she has the visiting dramatist Matt Costello say that for the artist, life can only fruitfully be a lonely track or a jealously personal adventure. In Mary Lavelle, she has her protagonist undergo an experience which reveals the absolute nature of art. In the bullfight, Mary sees, for all its savage cruelties and dangers, an exhibition of art, unconcerned and lawless, but more vivid with beauty and all beauty's anguish, more full of life's possible pain and senselessness and quixotry and barbarism and glory than anything ever before encountered by her. Art, in other words, cancels the boundaries human beings organise for themselves to control their ways and keep themselves safe. For her to write well, it had to be at long distance. At long distance it certainly was in the next novel, The Land of Spices, set in the opening years of this century. Once again, the centre of interest is the consciousness of a young girl. At the beginning of the novel, the young girl has become the reverend mother of an Irish branch of a French order of nuns, and we learn of her past through a series of flashbacks. While the direct narrative is concerned with her life in the Irish convent and the parallel progress of the little girl, Anna Murphy, the youngest pupil the school has ever had, who manages to capture the nun's interest and reconcile her to her Irish exile. The secret of the nun's life is not revealed until the middle of the novel, and there we learn that her becoming a nun was the result of the shock she suffered when she discovered that her father was a homosexual. Her extreme reaction to this can only be seen as an excess of sensibility over sense, as outraged innocence refusing to accept experience and her entering the convent and years of closing her heart to her father as childish revenge. In her life in Ireland, she is shown as recovering her balance and good sense, as realising that it is not for her to judge, that she must leave that to God. Her duty is to lead the nuns and children in her charge to God 
and guide them in their pursuit of la pudeur et la politesse, of modesty and politeness, the motto of the school. But the mature Helen Archer is given another role, that of protecting her charges against the short-sightedness and selfishness of their own family. Anna Murphy wins a scholarship to university, but her grandmother, who has paid her school fees, thinks she should not take it up, but look for a job in a bank or the like. Reverend Mother fights for Anna and wins the battle. The Land of Spices is a beautifully crafted piece of work. Past and present seamlessly run together, delightful in its variety, its contrast of the serious and the comic, and dealing with matters of special interest, one would have thought, to the author's countrymen and women. But it, like Mary Lavelle, proved to be a troublemaker. It too was banned as indecent and obscene because of one sentence. She saw her father and Etienne in the embrace of love. Evidently, in the eyes of the censors, the mere knowledge of the existence of homosexuality was dangerous, and to spread such knowledge a form of corruption. Kate O'Brien revenged this insult by writing The Last of Summer, where the claustrophobic, isolationist, self-satisfied Ireland of the immediate pre-war years is held up to opprobrium, and the vanity and egotism of certain people, regarded by society as model characters, is revealed in all their unrecognised hypocrisy. Ireland here is not a country for the intelligent young. Even after war is declared, the best of them leave for Europe. Kate O'Brien herself was in Ireland when war was declared in 1939. She returned immediately to England and worked to the Ministry of Information as well as continuing with her own writing. The Last of Summer was published in 1943 and three years later her seventh novel, That Lady, was published. In That Lady, Kate O'Brien gives us an interpretation of the role of an individual woman in history of a woman defending secular freedom, her right to love whom she chose, to reject an intolerable surveillance of her private life by a despotic head of state. As she wrote, the Second World War was raging, and I think the public response to the novel was influenced by this. It was not just Anna's heroism, but the cause in which that heroism was exercised that caught people's attention and admiration. This was a solitary woman centuries ago, defying the might of the patriarchal world, embodied as it was in her case in the ruler of an empire that stretched across Europe to the new world. She represented an example of those private individuals who lost their lives in such a cause during the 1939-1946 war against Hitler's Germany. In retrospect, we can see that that lady marked the climax of Kate Brown's career as a novelist. We can also see that she was lured off track by the suggestion from Catherine Cornell and Guthrie McClintock to dramatise the book. It proved a very difficult task and involved draft after draft and took years to do. It was not until the 23rd of November 1949 that the play was produced on Broadway and though it had a respectable run of 79 performances, it was not the out-and-out success she expected, and it did not, as she also expected, make her fortune. Independence, freedom, love. Kate O'Brien's heroines have been all in search of such absolutes. 
but it is apparently only in the artist's life that they can be found, and then they do not bring happiness. It is the search, the novel seems to say, that matters. The hidden treasure is never to be unearthed. Kate O'Brien did considerable research for his music and splendour. She spent the spring and summer of 1954 in Italy, heard Maria Callas sing in La Scala in the Repetition Générale of Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice, visited the opera houses of Naples and Ferrara, and acquired the topographical knowledge of Rome and its immediate surroundings, which she uses for the settings and meanderings of her characters. At home in her Shelburne days, she had studied Margaret Burke Sheridan, the retired prima donna who had had her days of glory in La Scala. Other Irish singers, such as Margaret Lydon and the Limerick soprano Catherine Hayes, are said to hover behind her other creatures here. A Flower of May was published in 1953. It was not until 1958 that his music and splendour appeared. It was to be her last novel, but not her last piece of writing. During the 50s, she had many projects on hand. In 1951, she produced Teresa of Avila, a monograph on the saint. In 1955, an essay, George Eliot, a moralising fabulist for the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Literature, a fellow of which she had recently become. And in 1956, she contributed Writers of Letters to Essays and Studies of the English Association. In 1962, her second travel book, My Ireland, was published, a book as idiosyncratic as her first in the genre, Farewell Spain. In 1963, an autobiographical fragment centred around her five aunts and called Presentation Parlour appeared. By then, she had left Ireland and returned to live in England in a village called Borton near Faversham in Kent. Life in Connemara had proved too expensive, at once too isolated and too exposed, and the Revenue Commissioners too attentive. This proved the last of her wanderings. She died in hospital in Canterbury on the 13th of August 1974 and was buried in Faversham. She had often claimed that one of the reasons for living in Roundstone was to be buried in the cemetery near Dogs Bay overlooking the Atlantic. But, on the other hand, she also was fond of saying, where the tree falls, there let it rest. At the beginning of this talk, I said, Kate O'Brien's work is being widely and intensively studied and discussed. If I were asked to sum up why, I should say in reply, she is being studied because she has left us a picture of Irish life that is at once true and original. She creates characters, mainly women characters, with minds and wills of their own, acting out of conscience and deciding moral issues on such considerations no matter how unconventional these decisions might seem to the society in which they live. She can engage our interest in our sympathy for such characters. She can create the glamour and allure of the sensuous world, the web of enchantment that romantic love can throw over life and the bitter disillusion which follows when the web is torn away. She can direct the narrative flow of the action so that it carries us along on its current. 
She was not only a literary critic of considerable weight, she was one of the first to recognize the genius of Samuel Beckett, for instance, but a social and political critic, making a mock of the puritanical, hypocritical, patriarchal Ireland that had developed in the 40s and 50s. She would not be at all surprised by the change Ireland of 1997. And if she could be asked what she thought of the renewed interest in her work, I think she might reply, I was never one for things done in a hurry. You did not call me Fabius Cunctator Maximus for nothing. That was Lorna Reynolds from the 1997 Thomas Davis Lecture Series dedicated to the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien, first broadcast in the centenary year of O'Brien's birth. The producer was Seamus Hosey. Look out for more talks from this series and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures podcast for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleanan Yanlun, thank you for listening.